In the second podcast of the series, lead academic Professor John Mee from the English and Comparative Literary Studies Department is joined by MA students Harriet Killy Kitter, Rebecca Lee and Emma Seddon to discuss Great Expectations as part of the University of Warwick's Celebrating Dickens project. Um, well, obviously Dickens is well known for giving his characters names which reflect their personalities, but I was wondering how you thought that worked in the novel. Well, I think the names do create expectations, Harriet, and you're meant to recognise that, but then I think what they often do is have a kind of surprise or get you to think about whether what happens to the character fits the name. So in Great Expectations, the most obvious example of that is Pip. It's a novel that has a lot of jokes about seeds and growth, and there is a sense he is the Pip from which the man will grow. But the novel begins by asking the question of what his name, who his parents and mother are. He only knows them through the, the gravestone. And Pip suggests that growth is going to happen naturally, like an onion grows from its uh, inner ring to produce the final shape of an onion. But of course, Pip, does the Pip we get really evolve naturally from Pip? Does he betray himself when he rediscovers who he really is? Is that the Pip that was intended from the beginning? So I think the names do signifying Dickens but there's a bit of trickiness there and it kind of provokes you to thinking about whether characters do fit their names and then there is a little joke in the novel quite explicitly about Dolge Orlick the character who's cut out of most film versions when he actually Dickens actually says that he thought it was as though he'd adopted the name only to frustrate the village in how to pronounce it so it's as though there he's making a, a joke about his use of names that seem to signify and what people will make of them how do you think the dynamic between desire and suffering works in Great Expectations? So you have like Pip's unrequited love of Estella and also Miss Havisham's failed, not even marriage. How do you think it works? Yeah, well, obviously, um, love hurts, as it were, Rebecca, in the, in the novel. But um, it also seems that getting what you want may not turn out to be the best thing for you. So there's definitely that... If you're loving this element of sadomasochism about Miss Havisham, but there's also that sense that even if you are free to get what you want, it may kind of turn to ashes. I think that's, to go back to the name thing, it's, it is do things fit, is desire and fulfilment quite the process, the natural process it seems to be. And I suppose, in a way, the classic instance of the ambiguity of that in the novel is the end, you know, the shadow of no parting. It looks like being together, the, the plot, drive is that being together everything's going to everything's going to be a happy ending but then it's also going to be a shadow of some sort just as the mists seem to be rising and everything seems to be coming clear so is it that Pip's not got over his obsession and there's still something dubious about his love for Estella or is it actually that everything has ended up happily so I think yeah the relationship between desire and suffering is complex in the novel. Much is made of Mrs Jo Gardry bringing Pip up by hand and hands are a reoccurring image throughout the novel. What do you think the significance is of this in the narrative? As you know, Emma, uh, from Oliver Twist, which you know almost off by heart, to be sure, <laughs> um, that joke occurs in, in Oliver Twist and it's a joke about whether as it suggests that the child has been nurtured or is actually, as in the case with Pip, it, it's been brought up by repeated blows. In a way, it's related to the natural growth theme. It's a thing about nurturing, but also about responsibility. Like, uh, there's a very famous line from a, an American poem, My eye has seen what the hand did. And there's a whole question there about responsibility. Is something done by your hands, or are there other forces shaping it? How much is, is one in control of the things that your hands do? So, And the very idea of bringing it up by hand, you're meant to be nurturing this child, but actually if you're 
abnegating that responsibility by striking them. So I think the hand does actually operate as a thing about responsibility, what it is to have your hands on something, to take responsibility, what it is to be the person behind the hand and how, how far the hand and the identity fit. So I think it is a significant symbol, but as in a lot of things we've been talking about, it's about whether things really fit as they seem to. As that pun, as any pun suggests, you know, there's two sides to what seems one word. Pip, when obviously narrating the novel, is the older Pip looking back at his experience as a child. So I was wondering what you thought about memory and hindsight in terms of the narrative voice. I mean, first-person narrative, Harriet, in some ways it suggests having a kind of unified view on things, but what actually happens is it's one of the ways we experience the sort of splits in the novel I was talking about because you're made very aware of the difference between the Pip then experiencing things and Pip now commenting on it. So you're aware of a kind of double focus. But then even to complicate it further, there are points where things look as though they ought to be in the past tense, as though this is what I thought then, now I'm grown up and beyond that, where the tense leaves you thinking that something that was uncertain then is still a source of uncertainty now. The thing I'm thinking of is one of the recurrent themes in the novel is this sense of being troubled by something you cannot name. I think it's called the smart without a name. And in the narration, you think he must say, I couldn't name it then, but he says, I cannot, in the present tense, I cannot. So even the grown-up Pip can't quite make sense of things. So you're aware of a split between them, but even the older Pip has not completely, as it were, resolved all his issues. So I think that's part of the kind of drama of the the text, the way it leaves you in a very kind of uncertain world. And linking to the idea of memory, do you think the novel promotes an authentic notion of home for Pip, like something to go back to? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question, Rebecca. Obviously, there's a sense in which the plot moves so that you're meant to feel in a way that Pip has left behind his real self at the forge. But the plot also suggests, even though it ends with a kind of going back to the ruins of Satis House, that that past is now in ruins in Satis House, that Joe's married Biddy, so he can't go back there, as it were, uh, even though he briefly, somewhat strangely, entertains the idea of marrying Biddy at the very end. So home is very important, but it's also a place you can't really go back to. So you're left feeling this individual, I mean, left home, has to kind of make his way out there in the world. And in some ways, the novel is about the fact that in a, a kind of modern commercial society, there is no place that simply fits anywhere. You have to kind of make yourself... That's not the confident idea of a self-made man. That is that that's a continuous source of anxiety. Where do you go? Where do you belong? What kind of identity do you make for yourself? So there is a home, but whether you can ever really go back to it, I think, is a, is a question. In relation to that, what do you think Pip's great expectations are? And do you think he ultimately achieves them, or does Dickens present them as though, as though he's achieved them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Emma. I, I mean, I think that... There's more than one great expectation. There's more than one sort. One great expectation, the most obvious, is that he's going to come into this inheritance that will confirm him as a gentleman. So in part, it's a financial, straightforwardly. The second thing is that he will be a gentleman. It's this expectation of actually arriving at a kind of proper identity, becoming a proper person. And, of course, it turns out that he's not the beneficiary of, of an inheritance from a a posh lady, but, you know, a convict. And it turns out that his expectations are thwarted there. His other set of expectations are that he's designed for Estella. It looks as though it's going to turn out not to be the case, but as it were, at the end, the very end of the novel, it looks like he's met his expectations, he's going to be with Estella. But even there, 
there's a kind of, as I've said, there's a shadow at least lurking over that ending. I mean, Dickens actually rewrote the ending to try and make it more positive. The, the original ending that he wrote, which was encountering Estella in the street with a child after a marriage broken down, was much more negative. He rewrites it positively, but even there, there's that sense that your great expectations aren't going to be met. It's quite a quite an ambivalent ending in that regard. So I don't think I don't think he ever does quite meet his great expectations. And the ending of the novel is quite dark, I think, in that regard.